This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with senior reporter for the Saturday paper, Rick Morton. Rick joined me to talk about the crisis within Australia's aged care system. Rick explains the political decisions, legislation and other factors that have accelerated the deterioration of the sector. Rick also discusses the findings from the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. And I'm so pleased to be welcoming onto this program Rick Morton, who's a senior reporter for the Saturday paper. He's also the author of 100 Years of Dirt and a very new book, My Year of Living Vulnerably. And Rick Morton has been reporting on social affairs and social issues and policy for a very long time. And uh, he's been covering one such issue that I'm really interested in delving into more deeply, and that is aged care. And I know it has been really a focus of the last couple of years, at least, in the sense that we have had rolling coverage of the Royal Commission into aged care. That's the shorter title of the Royal Commission. And it has really brought up a number of things, some of which we knew and some of which I guess we probably suspected but didn't know the extent of. So I welcome Rick now, who joins me to discuss all of these things. Hi, Rick. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Amy. I really appreciate it. Well, I've got to say, and I'm sure I speak for a number of people, um, they really admire your work, and I certainly do. Journalists have become pretty time poor recently, (laughs) you know, with cost-cutting and the 24-hour news cycle getting more and more demanding, and politicians throwing out a lot of curveballs in terms of trying to distract people and garner attention over here when they're trying to deflect attention over there. And of course, that's not a new strategy, but it does seem to have been working more and more with people being less able to sort through the noise. So it does strike me as really critical to be able to speak with people like you who have had the time as a reporter to actually focus on some of these policy issues over a number of years to get to know the sector, to understand the players, to have really developed sources and to yeah understand in depth this policy area. So before we jump into this issue in particular, I just wanted to set the scene with your reporting and the issues that you do report on and have reported on as a journalist, because I think it is quite rare now to have journalists focus on certain rounds. And it does seem to be an interest of yours and something that you really do contribute to in a a substantial way. Well, it is. And I look, I recognise first up that I'm extremely lucky to be even in the position I am now at the Saturday paper where I, you know, I write one big story a week and I get time to dive into it. But even um, when I was at The Australian, for the most part, they left me alone to to dive into policy. And I recognised very early on that I wasn't the type of journalist that could go to a, a soiree or a, a drinks event and network and get yarns that way. I'm much more obsessive um, and, and, you know, love detail. And, of course, um, I, you know, because we are also time poor now, it's become, unfortunately, this is not a good thing, it's become easier for me to kind of latch on to policy issues because no one else is covering them. Mm. Um, you know, there are some great reporters who are doing social welfare stuff like Luke uh, Enrique Gomez at The Guardian. Yes. Um, and we Norman have on Amot. the show regularly too. Yeah, <laughs> Luke's great. I love Luke. Um, yeah. He's a really good reporter and just works like a demon. Yes. Um, but, and there's Norman Hermon at the ABC who just does some good stuff. But really beyond that, in terms of the policy 
detail and particularly with NDIS and aged care, which is something I've taken on since 2013. So for almost eight years now, I've been covering these, these two sectors and they are more related than we would care to admit. I think it's, I think it's really important. I don't want to um, blow my own trumpet, but it's, it's not hard to do this job if you've got a little bit of time and you know where to look for stuff. And unfortunately, no one else is actually paying that much attention. So you look better than you actually are, I think. <laughs> well, I've got to say, um, putting in that time and effort does reap rewards. Would you say, given that you have that time, you've got that institutional memory, in a sense, of knowing a certain sector over those period of years? I mean, it reminds me of journalists who've been in journalism a bit longer than you, like Laura Tingle, who mm. we often now look to to say, hey, Laura, can you tell us, has anything else similar happened oh in God, Australian yes. politics, you know, over the time you've reported it? Because barely any journalists are around now who've got that level of knowledge. We're all so young. Um, and I remember very distinctly, actually, the first time in my own career where I realised the value of that corporate knowledge mm. coming back. Because, you know, I, when I first started, um, you know, I was a journalist uh, straight out of high school, but the, my first kind of serious journalism job was when I started at The Australian in 2012. And I knew nothing about the world um, or about policy, and I just had to slowly learn. And I remember by the, about my fourth budget, which was, funnily enough, 2016, Having the knowledge of things that had happened in the past or knowing what the budget light items looked like and what was going to change and being able to pick it up on the fly. And that stuff was so, it, it made my job so much easier. And also just over time, you accrue contacts who build trust in you because of what you've written. If you take the time and you take the care not to be sensationalist, but to get the detail right, then you'll be surprised how many people want to talk to you even if they don't necessarily agree all the time with the kind of things that you want to report on. Like I've had running battles with aged care providers over the years, but still they come and talk to me because they know that I at least understand the entire sector, which mm. you don't get with other, with other journalists necessarily all the time. Indeed, yes. Well, it does remind me it's even good to, you know, get the quotes right because um, I've often, you know, spoken to media and looked at it and said, that's definitely not what I said. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, oh. Shorthand was one of the best things I ever learned, I must admit, <laughs> uh, in my cadetship when I was a butter baby on the Gold Coast. So, yeah, it sounds uh, like a, a dying, yeah, dying art. Quite, quite literally, unfortunately, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, Rick, that's really great to hear because, I mean, it does come through in your reporting and I know that it is great that we have independent media actually putting the funding in and allowing that time through publications like the Saturday Paper, among others. So let's just take a step back chronologically, given your experience, and think about the aged care sector because we have arrived with this report that has actually been delivered and released and tabled in Parliament, which we'll get to in a second. Mm -hmm. And this hasn't come out of nowhere. This isn't a sudden deterioration in a sector or a system. This is something that has been building and building and deteriorating and deteriorating. And some people, some policy decisions have accelerated that deterioration, but it seems like the entire structure of the system isn't fit for purpose. The way that it has developed or how it has become obviously strained in terms of the demands that are now required of it, it just doesn't seem like it actually works as it should. So for those who aren't aware of, of these kind of long-standing issues within aged care, what are some of these issues that we really knew about 
all those years back when you were starting to report about it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's important to put it in context. So, and and everyone says this, and it's an easy line to trot out, and it's mostly true that the system was largely privatised in 1997 with John Howard's changes to the aged care legislation. You know, they removed requirements for nurses, registered nurses, to be on site at nursing homes 24 hours a day. Um, so that just disappeared in the legislation in 1997. It took a while for things to start building um, or, in this case, deteriorating um, because of those changes because what the sector was doing essentially, particularly private nursing home operators, was testing the boundaries of what they could get away with under this new legislation. But Howard, funnily enough, never actually got to do what he really wanted to do, which was release billions of dollars into the sector of people's own money paid through residential accommodation bonds um, or deposits. And and strangely enough, that was actually what happened with Mark Butler's reforms when he was Labor's minister in 2012, the Living Mm -hmm. Longer, Living Better reforms. They unshackled billions of dollars of money into this sector. And suddenly um, that's when you get the greed that comes into it. It wasn't about necessarily the residents' care subsidies that they were getting from the Australian government. It was about the money they could get from them uh, as a deposit because that was what fueled it as a property play. So all of these issues were kind of bubbling away in the background. You know, they still needed funding from the taxpayer to pay for, you know, the nursing care that happens in these nursing homes, whether they were private, not-for-profit or still state-run. And that was, you know, happening through a number of different what they call funding instruments over the different years. But the aged care funding instrument, as it's now known, began in 2008. And it was just a wildly unpredictable tool because no one, as it turns out, had ever done the work to find out what nursing home residents actually need in terms of their care and the complexity of their care. And so all of these things are just kind of flying around and all of a sudden you get billions of dollars come in from these accommodation deposits and it turns residential aged care into a property play you know, you've got these related companies all in the same company structure but all with different entities. Some of them are renting out properties that they own back to another part of the, the company at highly inflated rates. Um, they take the bonds, you know, you know, $500,000 uh, per person. You know, I think the average is $350,000 per person and then they put it somewhere else in the company that the government can't even see where that money is. And Really what all of these things are doing is they're building the, the, the conditions for a perfect storm, which uh, we can kind of chart the course of over the, the years following 2013. Well, it's really interesting that that, I mean, it's not surprising when you lay out the, the kind of figures of how much a bond actually is and, you know, where this money goes to or we don't know where it goes to. I mean, when oh, you think You literally about, can't see it. <laughs> which is crazy to think of. It makes you wonder about what you've just said there around if it's already privatised and you've then injected all that funding in, what kind of motivations change in terms of why people, particularly business people, enter aged care and also how these companies grow and then in some cases, as you've reported, go public and are listed Mm -hmm. and kind of become these giants. How did that happen? What are your observations around the kind of types of operators? Because there are a whole range of operators um, that exist in this sector. Look, it's a really important question and it's a really difficult one. Like I want to be as nuanced as I can on this because it actually is very easy to slap down aged care providers and say they're all terrible. The system is terrible. There are bad providers, obviously. And one of the most interesting things 
um, about uh, Mark Butler's reforms with those accommodation deposits, it was within six months or a year that the first aged care companies uh, in Australia listed on the stock exchange. So they went public. Um, I can't remember the exact order, but it's still the same three. So it was Estia, uh, Japara and Regis. They all listed on the stock exchange um, within uh, a year of the legislation getting passed, which was in early 2013 from memory. And they were all on the stock exchange by 2014. So these suddenly you've got this private behemoth uh, that is responsible firstly to their shareholders. Now, they would argue that you can't return money to your shareholders unless you're doing a good job uh, in terms of looking after people. And to an extent, that's sort of true. And Mark Butler certainly would argue that, you know, the number of private providers in aged care did not noticeably increase after his reforms. And that's true. But what did increase is the number of what they call operational places, which is just nursing home places. The number of nursing home places controlled by private for-profit providers went through the roof. I can't remember the exact figures off the, off the top of my head, but there was a huge increase following those 2012 reforms. That in itself, now, the government has not delivered aged care in a very long time. So what we then need to appreciate is that we've got a combination of still state-run services, most of them in Victoria. You've got not-for-profit, so you've got all the big charities, the churches, the religious institutions who are running nursing homes, and in many cases cross-subsidising them with other parts of their charity operation. And because they're not-for-profit, it doesn't mean that they don't make a profit. Um, it just means that the profit doesn't go to shareholders or directors in that sense. And then you've got the private providers. So we actually, the way the system's run at the moment, we can't unscramble the egg. So we actually need providers, no matter what stripe they are, to run these services. The issue then becomes, well, what are we funding them to do? Where is the money going? And as it currently stands, do they have enough money to do it? And I don't think the answer is um, yes to that last question. I don't think we the, the money has been bleeding from the system over a long period of time, particularly since the 80s, but it accelerated in 2016 when Scott Morrison was treasurer. And, and that has done more harm to this sector and to abuse, neglect and the quality of care um, than almost any other single decision made by a government since mm. John Howard's reforms. We'll touch on that in just one second. I wanted mm. to pick up on another point that you made in relation to this point in time where um, companies are growing, they're listed, they have shareholders that they are beholden to, and this is, you know, not something new in corporate Australia is no. that, uh, you know, shareholders want dividends. And uh, really a lot of company directors had uh, prioritised shareholder returns as being one of their key responsibilities. Obviously, there are other responsibilities of a company director, but that has been, you know, at the forefront of their minds. And uh, I was interested in your piece from uh, the Saturday paper in September 2020 when you were chronicling the collapse of aged care. You said that for-profit providers now represent 49% of all aged care operators. So as we just heard there, that doesn't count not-for-profit and state government-run aged care. Correct. And then after that, you go on to say the aged care giants grew quickly. This is after their listing. In early 2018, Regis had a market capitalisation of $1.2 billion 
It has since dropped to $342 million following years of blows to the sector. And together, this corporate trio, this is the three that you mentioned that had listed, has recorded $8.4 billion worth of revenue from government subsidies and resident charges in five years. Over the same time, the three listed companies paid out almost $600 million to shareholders. Mm. I mean, this sounds like a sector that if you were a shareholder, you might want to invest in. But I wonder when we're talking about funding them, we're talking about big numbers in terms of these listed companies. How do we reconcile the fact that there does seem to be a lot of money in this system, but it doesn't Mm. seem to get to the residents or the care that they're receiving? Mm. It's It's a really good question. And it's so complex. But you know, this year or last year, the government, the Australian taxpayer spent about $20 billion uh, on aged care in total. So that's across home care and residential aged care, which is your nursing homes. On average, nursing homes in Australia receive 75 to 80% of all of their funding from the Australian government, from the Commonwealth. But there are also other mechanisms in place, particularly for um, residents who, are, who have the means to pay a resident contribution. And so some of that comes through what they call the basic daily fee, um, which is not for care. So the government really spends most of its money on direct, what they call the direct care subsidy. But then you've got a basic uh, daily fee, which covers what they call the hotel side of the business. So it's laundry, sanitation, uh, food, all of the things that are attendant to the actual nursing care. And that can be paid for by people using uh, their own kind of house deposits or the deposits they paid to the nursing home operator, but also at a capped rate as part of their age pension. So I think they can take up to, I think it's 89% off the top of my head of the aged care pension um, to pay for these things while they're in a home. And so there are other profit revenue sources for aged care providers, including the fact that they get to keep all of the interest on these massive bonds. So, you know, these big listed companies have, uh, you know, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars worth of aged care bonds. And that money has to be returned. uh, The principle of that sum has to be returned back to people or their estate when they leave the nursing home, um, most likely when they die. But all of the interest that that money earns is theirs to spend. And that has been the lucrative aspect for these big aged care companies. And as long as they kept growing and they kept uh, taking resident bonds, then their business was fly as hell. They were doing great. But the problem is you've got these publicly listed companies in particular that are trying to operate as if they're in a totally unregulated free market when this system is not even a free market. It's a quasi-market that is almost entirely regulated by the Australian government. And the Australian government has never really known how much to get out of the way and how much to stay involved because you were talking about people at the end of their life, half of whom have dementia, possibly 70% of nursing home residents have dementia, um, and they need oversight. And so that's where you've got massive amounts of money coming into the system. Some of it's for care, but again, we've never really tracked from a government point of view where that money is going precisely. And I can explain why that matters later on when we talk about the cuts that were made in 2016. But we've never really cared to look because the government hasn't really wanted to fund this system properly. And they knew, and the Royal Commission has now found, 
that if this system were funded properly and if you did all of those assessments about what is needed, then you're going to need a lot more money. Yeah. Well, it's almost like out of sight, out of mind here, take the money. (laughs) And and they literally say basically that aged care ministers successively over many years, many decades, Mm. just did not look at this system because they did not want to. Yeah, as we've seen in Canberra recently, is that there are political problems that ministers see, but they're not just political problems. They're actually things that affect human beings. So, but it's often easy for some to, you know, reduce things to politics when that's your profession. Oh, God, Um, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about someone who does do that, and that is the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. You did foreshadow that decision, that fateful decision, and it does sound like there is a difference between how Labor was approaching this issue and then how Scott Morrison approached this issue when he was responsible. So could you share with us what that key difference was and what that key decision was that has really accelerated this deterioration? Yeah. So bearing in mind that already the governments had failed to adjust what they call the planning ratio. So already the amount of money available for people who actually need residential aged care, which is increasingly people in their 80s, not in their 70s, Um, has been declining for two decades. So on top of that, we've got the care subsidy, and that's paid for by the Australian government through what is called the aged care funding instrument. And basically providers score residents saying, oh, they've got complex healthcare needs, they need pain management, wound management, that attracts a higher daily fee. So they get that money from the government. Of course, residents' frailty has been growing over many years, so those costs have been increasing. Labor when in 2012 uh, saw that and they were like, well, we don't know where this money is going and there's been a massive increase over and above what our budget estimated. So what we're going to do is take $1.2 billion out of the aged care funding instrument, which is that subsidy, but we're going to put it into what they called a workforce compact, which was to try and boost the skills and pay of the aged care workforce. So the money wasn't disappearing from the system. In fact, they were trying to address one of the most crucial problems, which we can also discuss later, which is staffing. Scott Morrison comes along as treasurer in 2015, 2016. He does the exact same thing, except he takes out $1.6 billion by changing the indexation of that direct care subsidy and also changing the score in how they apportion money to the complex healthcare domain. So this is the fastest increasing domain in the direct care subsidy. He doesn't put the money back into a workforce compact like Labor did. In fact, he doesn't put it back into the aged care system more broadly at all. He takes it out and books it as a budget saving because, remember, they're trying to return to surplus. Mm. And that is important for two reasons. The cut is $1.6 billion, massive. It's a huge problem. But because it's a cut to indexation, it actually reinforces itself every year by when the indexation does kick back in in 2019-20, which it did, it's at a much lower base. And so what you're actually doing is stripping billions of dollars that should have been there in the system from the system. And that actually had its biggest impact in 2018-19, so three years after that decision was made. And, in fact, the Royal Commission has found that if you take into account those indexation changes that Morrison and Labor made, but particularly Morrison, and the failure to address changes to the planning ratio. So at the moment, for years, they've been doing it for, you know, the number of 70-year-olds in a given population, and it should be the number of 80-year-olds. Those two failures combined have stripped almost $10 billion 
annually from the aged care system, which is almost exactly the figure that Commissioner Linnell Briggs suggests will need to be increased or paid into the system now to fund the reforms that they're proposing. So, I mean, it sounds like there's been a compounding effect really because of that indexation that it's just continually compounded in terms of the funding crisis. Um, And that's no doubt, um, as the report shows from the Royal Commission, this does affect delivery in a number of ways, as do some of the other things, like the federal aged care regulator, who is supposed to oversee standards and quality of the privatised aged care sector that the federal government has responsibility for. Let's talk about standards in aged care Mm. because this is something which has come up and it's probably been the more prominent issue because it has really been something that families have brought forward and very loudly in some cases advocated for their parents. And, I mean, thankfully they have because in some cases we're dealing with vulnerable people who, as you say, have dementia perhaps and may not remember some of the things that happened to them Mm. or may not realise what is happening to them depending on their type of dementia. And we have seen a whole range of reports around physical abuse, uh, mental abuse and also sexual abuse of elders who live in private aged care facilities. That's one element that I did want to pick up on. Because we have been talking about this issue of sexual abuse more broadly, elder abuse doesn't seem to get as much attention as the issue in a broad general sense. And so I did want to ask about your knowledge and understanding of this from the people you've spoken to, the really concerned family members of people who have had to deal with this system, have tried to report abuse and whether they've found useful mechanisms to deal with that abuse or whether they've had to kind of remove their parents from the system? I know that's a big question, but Mm. maybe you could, you know, pick out what you think is most pertinent for us to understand. Well, I mean, yeah, I think you go to the heart of a really important issue here. And there is a mandatory reporting system for the abuse of older people in residential aged care. Um, I'm not suggesting that it's used nearly as often as it should be, um, because we have seen evidence throughout this Royal Commission that things uh, that ought to have been reported were not. Um, But even so, under that system, there were 5,718 allegations of assault under that mandatory reporting regime. But that only captures staff or other people who are not residents of nursing homes who are abusing residents of nursing homes. It doesn't capture resident-on-resident assault, in which case, if it did, um, there were suggestions in the Royal Commission by KPMG that there would be a further 27,000 to 39,000 alleged assaults occur every year. And the underlying moral problem with that is that people, including managers of this system, just think that sexual assault is part and parcel of people, particularly with dementia, and that, you know, oh, it's just something that happens. Well, yeah, it is something that happens among people with dementia, and that's why you should be aware of it and you should be stopping it, because we have almost given up this idea that the people who enter nursing homes are still people. I say we as a universal we there. Obviously, mm. I don't believe that. But yeah. that's how we are acting as a, as a country. It's like, oh, well, you know, that's fine or it's just something that we're going to have to accept because that's what happens. That's a reason to actually go harder on this stuff because we do know it's an increased risk among people with dementia. 
and you know, and that's just you know direct assault. But you know, Commissioner Linnell Briggs was saying that she believes, based on the, everything they've heard, that at least one in three people accessing residential aged care and home care have experienced substandard care, and that includes assault and you know neglect and poor nutrition. Um, it includes understaffing, unanswered call bells. You know, we've heard these horrific stories of people who just want to go to the toilet. Mm. And they ring their bell and either they're made to wait anyway for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour, or when someone does come to get them, they're so furious that the resident has wanted to go to the bathroom that they're mistreated. In fact, that was one of the cases that kicked off this entire Royal Commission. It was with Stuart Johnston's mother, Helen, who was in the Oakton nursing home. She was left, she was thrown onto the toilet and then she was left there for hours as punishment for daring to ask for help. And... You know, there are individuals who are bad in nursing homes and some of those have been charged by the police over a number of years now. But there are also so many good people who just cannot do a good job because there are not enough staff and there are not enough qualified staff. And I think the key stat here, which I think I, I want everyone to take in, is that since 2003, so, you know, six years after John Howard's reforms, He's still Prime Minister, obviously. The proportion of registered nurses in aged care has fallen from 21% to 15% of all employees. The number of enrolled nurses has in, has fallen from 13% to 10%. The number of allied health professionals has gone from 7% to 5%. Meanwhile, the number of personal care workers who are lovely, poorly paid, poorly trained, real entry-level jobs has gone from 50% to about 73% of the entire aged care workforce. So this is what I mean when I say that we don't have the money in the system. And when advocates say that, we're not arguing for providers to, to have bigger profits or higher revenues, but you cannot break the laws of physics. There are not enough staff in nursing homes, not even enough money to employ them, to stop these things from happening. And that, as the commission says... It's poor staffing that is the principal cause of substandard care, the principal cause. So that's the stuff that I think, you know, obviously we need to have a, a moral revolution in terms of our understanding of the fact that, yes, these are people, and, and that then necessitates that we tackle very seriously the idea of how to stop these things from happening, and that it has to come through staffing. Well, you have cited previously um, some research for the Royal Commission from Professor Cathy Eager, mm. who was looking at Australian nursing homes and the average time a resident received each day, and she estimated it was around 180 minutes of care. You also note that that in fact, ranks at the bottom of what is acceptable around the world. Yeah. So we that's a one-star rating. Yeah, we were at the lowest in terms of how much we pay our unemployed and now we're second lowest and we are the lowest in terms of how we are treating in terms of the direct care we're able to give nursing home residents every day. I mean, it is pretty staggering to think that given that Australia really doesn't lack in terms of funding and it, it seems to be a choice. It is. It's 100% a choice. And that's – so the, I, mean, I meant to make this point when I was talking about the cuts to the direct care subsidy, the $1.6 billion that Morrison took out. The government's argument all along was that providers were rorting that money. And it's true. Some of them, i.e. some of the biggest ones, were overclaiming. But it was from a base. Um, there's two points about that. 
the cuts were delivered to the entire aged care system. So the government didn't try and find out which providers were rorting the money. They cut it for everyone, including nursing homes in regional and remote Australia, which already struggled to survive and which were, on the evidence, underclaiming. Mm. So in the in the poorest parts of the country, nursing homes were not claiming as much as they had a right to for the care of their residents. Um, and in the wealthiest parts, according to postcode analysis, nursing homes were charging more than they had a right to under the current system. But the Royal Commission's findings are that there wasn't enough money to catch up to the frailty and complexity of the needs in the system in the first place because the entire thing was underfunded. So the government's argument, uh, it, it fails there, right? And it also fails because the reason they never wanted to undertake those assessments was because the moment they did, they would have been told things like what Dr Cathy Eager told the Royal Commission through her research is that there is not enough care in this system. 180 minutes is among the lowest in the world and in comparable nations. And only, I think, on average, I think 36 minutes of that every day per resident was registered nurse time. And again, they're the ones who are most needed because they're the ones who are qualified to do complex wound dressing, complex pain management, to actually make sure that medication systems are followed, to make sure that where people are crying out it's typically because there's pain involved and rather than medicating them with psychotropic medication, which is what has been done, doping the elderly to keep them sedated, they should be marshalling staff and resources to treat those underlying issues so that people aren't calling out in pain or being disturbing in their behaviours because of an undiagnosed or untreated cause. And the Royal Commission has made what I think is the most important recommendation. It doesn't go as far as I would have thought they would have, but they do recommend at a minimum 215 minutes per resident per day, which is an increase of 35 minutes per person per day, with a minimum of that 44 minutes being registered nurse hours um, or registered nurse time. That's massive because at the moment um, there was another study done for the Royal Commission, actually out of their own office they did this and they compared all of the data across the country. On average in the not-for-profit sector and the private sector, the average registered nursing time per resident per day was 36 minutes. And in the state-run sector, again, mostly Victoria, it was 120 minutes of wow. registered nurse time. So they've actually got in Victoria, and this is another important point, they've got legislated staffing minimums, which is now what the Royal Commission is recommending for the entire Australian system. And we saw what happens when you've got a depleted, poorly trained workforce with COVID-19 in Victoria 700 and something people died in nursing homes. Not one of those was in a state-run service. In fact, the state-run services, which are in both regional and metropolitan Victoria, um, only had a couple of cases. Mm. That made all the difference in having, you know, competent people running a service and keeping residents safe. I mean, that's the best argument you'll ever hear for the changes now being recommended by the Royal Commission. Indeed, yes. Well, infection control is so critical, as we've seen with coronavirus and having the right PPE, but also the right skill set to be able to use PPE properly. Yes, and not so just do an online training module, which the government whacked together, mm. you know, in April and then only made a third of the workforce complete. Like it was just monstrous Astounding. what happened. Yeah. Yeah. It seemed like a box ticking exercise rather than actually seeking to fix the issue. 
you picked up on something there in terms of legislation, and that is one of the things that the Royal Commissioners focus on in the Royal Commission is the legislation, the act that does oversee this whole sector. And they really just say, well, this is what I'm interpreting it as, is just scrap it and start again. Yeah, tear it up. Yeah. What does that mean for us when we're thinking about that? What what does that mean for a politician and what should we expect of our politicians based on that recommendation? So, yeah, it's it's an interesting point because obviously legislation is legislation. What could it possibly matter, right? Well, it turns out quite a lot, um, particularly in the way it's framed. So the Aged Care Act we've got is, is just an amended one from the 1997 John Howard reforms. Um, there's, there's a you know a bunch of bolt-on additions, but the the essential skeleton is exactly as it was in 1997. And again, there's no explicit recommendation or requirement in that legislation that there be a certain number of staff. It only says that there must be an appropriate level of staff skill and mix. And it's like, what do those words mean? They're not defined. And also, more importantly, according to the Royal Commission, there's nothing in there about the rights of people receiving these services. It's all about maintaining and constraining government expenditure on aged care instead of saying, well, what is it that we need to give people to live a dignified existence while receiving aged care support? Um, what does quality look like through the human, you know, through a human rights prism, essentially? Um, and that would be a massive revolution in the way we treat aged care. Whether it's done to the degree that the Royal Commission recommends, I doubt it will be because, again, one of those problems, we go back to the standards and having a regulator and a watchdog look over this stuff. The reason the government hasn't acted on half of these things in the past is because it, it doesn't want to spend the money. And, you know, there's a reason why the aged care watchdog, for example, which in, uh, enforces the standards which are instruments of the, the governing legislation in the first place, those standards say almost nothing about how you actually measure quality. Again, mm. there's no definitions in there about what quality is. Uh, there's no definitions about what is appropriate. And the regulator barely uses the most extreme powers that it already has, which is to cancel the accreditation of a provider in cases where it's clearly warranted because the government can't afford particularly having cut so much money out of the sector and it's not exactly an, an attractive place to operate at the moment, they can't afford for providers to disappear or to close down. In fact, they're obsessed having, you know, obsessed with whether they're going to collapse now because of their own decisions in government and they've commissioned all of these reports, viability reports about these, these homes. And so the regulator has never been able to effectively oversee this sector because it's ultimately at the beck and call of the government and the government doesn't want to know. And so what happens with the legislation, it does need to change. It does need to be completely rewritten, partly to give effect to some of these reforms, such as making sure that directors of aged care companies bear some responsibility when things go wrong, because at the moment that's not the case. There does need to be, uh, you know, stuff in the legislation that gives effect to, you know, following where the money goes when we pay it. Obviously, we can't put $10 billion more into the system if we don't make sure it goes where it's needed. And, and so those are the things that we really need to look carefully at and make sure that the politicians follow up on because mm. that will be where things go wrong if they, if they fail. Rick, we'll um, have to wrap it up in a minute, but I did want to just 
touch on a couple of things while we wrap up. One is the specific funding arrangements that have been recommended because you've said mm-hmm. they think that an extra $10 billion is needed instantly in terms of just catching things up and funding some of these shortfalls that have been compounding over years. But I believe they also think that funding needs to increase every year, essentially. Well, yes, uh, yes. And this system is, you know, becoming bigger and growing and the needs of residents are growing as well. And we do have, as people have heard a million times, an ageing population. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that the two commissioners uh, recommended that the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission, a watchdog, should be scrapped and reconstituted and that they Mm. wanted something different. So I just wondered whether you could share with us those other recommendations and what they really mean and and what your thoughts are on them. Yeah, I'll be as quick as I can. I mean, essentially, the $10 billion extra is a recurring figure. So, Mm. I mean, we spend $20 billion now as a government. Linnell Briggs says these reforms would make that $30 billion if they were implemented today. Some of them won't be implemented for a couple of years or four years in in the out in the out period. But even so, um, you know that would make it a thirty billion dollars system if we did it all today. The government estimates the last budget in October last year don't have aged care. You know they have aged care hitting twenty six billion dollars in funding by twenty twenty four twenty five. So this is a massive increase because if we do all of these things by twenty twenty five, we'll be spending thirty five billion dollars. $36 billion a year rather than what would have been 26. Yeah. So that's where it comes in. And this has to be spent every year. This is not a once-off bolt of extra funding, which is the way the government has chosen to, to stopgap some of this stuff as a political fix. You know, put a bit of extra money there, here and there, you know, $100 million, but don't make it recurring. Don't make the system keep paying this because we can't afford it. That's that's their view. Um, and, yeah, the, the commissioners do recommend blowing up the watchdog because the watchdog, as it is currently constituted, does not work. And it doesn't work for a whole number of reasons, partly because the standards it, are, it is asked to enforce barely say anything at all, partly because it has a conflict of interest because it is both meant at the moment the worst part of its job is, well, it has to enforce and be the tough cop, but also it's... Literally, its its job, as it sees it, as um, Jenna Anderson, the commissioner, sees it, is to help nursing home providers get better, what they call continuous improvement. Now, we saw the effects of that during COVID-19 when providers wanted to ask for help to get their infection control up to scratch, to get the PPE up to scratch, but they were afraid to ask for help because they thought that if they did, they would get pinged for not being up to scratch. And so it was this tension that cannot resolve itself. And so both of them recommend that this commission be blown up. Um, Commissioner uh, Tony Pagone recommends that there be a completely independent system from, you know, above the regulator from what he wants to call the Australian Aged Care Commission, the AACC, which would be removed from ministerial discretion. Linnell Briggs thinks that would take too long to set up as a completely independent thing. So she thinks that, you know, you should just pull apart the regulator and a couple of other systems and rebuild them, um, but with the right kind of incentives so that you don't have this weird system where you're trying to make people do better but also arrest them, quote-unquote, for breaking the rules because um, one of those things cannot um, work while the other one's in place. Yeah, it sounds like that latter option still involves the Department of Health with a separate Secretary of Aged Care 
in a separate office within that same department. So, you know, Correct. it's slightly like, different, but from someone, <laughs> I wonder what your thoughts are, who's seen <laughs> how departments are now working, you know, civil servants doing their best. It does sound like it is a big ask for them, given what they currently already deal with in terms of their capacity for policy and, you know, specific management of, of certain sectors and areas. Look, it's a, look. I mean, I won't talk about this forever, but it is a hard one because, like, I'm of the view that the system is broken for a reason, and it's partly because we're doing the same old things every time. Yeah. But also, having watched the NDIS start up from scratch, the National Disability Insurance Agency, which oversees it, I mean, that was a completely new system from start to scratch. Like, the old way of doing things was completely blown up, um, and it turns out it's really problematic because what the system needed was more money to support more people. It didn't need a complete overhaul of the architecture. And mm. so there are really interesting, and I'm not an expert on this, there are really interesting points to be made on, on both sides of that about what the correct way is forward. And I, I don't have a personal view at this stage because it is maddeningly complex. Yeah, it does sound like it. Well, Rick, you've brought so much detail, but also nuance to this discussion. And I'm really grateful to you for your time today. It's been disturbing and fascinating to understand how this sector has been working and also particularly the policy decisions, the political decisions that our politicians have been making on our behalf. And of course, they do seem to kind of blur and change when you get that kind of piecemeal funding of just dropping random amounts at the feet of certain yes. groups in the hope that that will quiet them down for a little while. It clearly hasn't worked and it certainly has done a great disservice to our elderly in Australia. So thank you for following this topic and reporting on it so wonderfully and, um, and telling us all about it today. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's good to do these things in the longer form. Absolutely, yeah. Maybe we can get you on to talk about the NDIS because I really want to talk about that. Oh, I've got things to say. So. <laughs> Excellent. Let's book it in. Thank you so much, Rick. Thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. I've just Bye. been chatting with Rick Morton. He's a senior reporter for the Saturday paper. He's also the author of 100 Years of Dirt, which I highly recommend, and he's just released uh, a new book called My Year of Living Vulnerably. We've just been discussing the Royal Commission into Aged Care and all the detail and nuance around that.